0: Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, episode number 86. With Peter Cohen, who was appointed the eighth president of University of Phoenix in April 2017, bringing more than 20 years of leadership in the education and learning science sectors. My name is Andrea Samadhi, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research along with high performing experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific strategies or ideas that you can implement immediately, whether you're an educator or in the corporate space to take your results to the next level. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with Peter Cohen today. As the 8th President of University of Phoenix, Peter has been focused on further accelerating the university-wide transformation and service of its vision to be recognized as the most trusted provider of career-relevant higher education for working adults. After 20 years of leadership in the field of education, he brings a deep understanding of the potential for technology to improve the quality of education, An understanding he's developed through a career focused on innovation in service of students and improved learning outcomes prior to his work at the university of phoenix many of us from the educational publishing world would know peter when he was the ceo of pearson education school group where i first met him or president of u.s education at mcgraw hill overseeing the company's us k-12 and higher ed businesses where he helped the organization reimagine learning in the digital world. Peter was on the forefront of change in the education industry, driving both companies rollout of multiple technology tools, which is why I reached out to him at a time when technology has never been so important in our lives. Welcome, Peter.
1: Thanks, Andrea. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks so much for being available with your time to share your knowledge and vision for the state of education at a time when we really do need a positive angle. And just to give our listeners some background, I first met Peter when he came on board as the CEO of Pearson Education School Group. I was working for Pearson's digital learning division for the K-12 school market. And we were in the Chandler, Arizona offices, and I'm going back many years to 2008 And I can still remember your introductory speech to our group, Peter, like it was yesterday. And we were all packed into this tiny little room and it was full of sales reps and managers. And we all had the hopes of making an impact on student learning in the classroom. And I remember as you stood at the front that your passion for education and making a difference for student learning was evident back then. Can you just give us some, a snapshot of your background and why you've always been so passionate about education, specifically with the power of technology to make education accessible and engaging for everyone?
1: Yeah, Andrea, it's, it's a little frightening to me that you remember a talk I gave 12 years ago, because I certainly can't remember anything I said 12 years ago. So I guess as leaders, we really have to remember just how much weight our position power has with the listener. And I I wasn't always passionate about education. In fact, I didn't appreciate school when I went to it with its kind of fixed pace and fixed stages through K-12. And kind of those disappointments that I really personally experienced through school left a mark on me. And I came back to address them years later. I started off in industry outside of education, but I got reinterested in education after I had children of my own and I saw how little schools had changed in 20 years. And so I first ran a company you mentioned called Sylvan Learning, which started off in the tutoring space. Then we branched out into serving K-12 schools, building out one of the largest virtual charter school networks in the country, and then creating Laureate, which became the largest global university system in the world. And from there, I got more heavily involved in ed tech, first with Pearson, where you and I met, and then with McGraw-Hill Education, and finally came to University of Phoenix about three years ago as its eighth president, as you mentioned. And in each business, our focus was really to help students achieve success in school and to prepare them for success in life. And it's been quite a journey so
0: far. Wow. Well, you've you've done a lot for this field and like fast forwarding 12 years from that day we met, I don't think any of us in the room would have predicted the surge and importance of online learning as we see it today. And I say this with disappointment as well because the group you spoke to back then, it doesn't exist anymore. So from your point of view, what is the state of education as you see it today with the power of online learning for our K-12 schools as well as our higher ed campuses?
1: Yeah, I'll talk about that. But just one comment about your comment out the Pearson Digital Group not existing, not existing anymore. I think that's actually a good thing because it means that education technology has been incorporated into the mainstream for these large digital publishing companies. So back in uh, when I was at Sylvan, we built the second largest virtual charter school business before it was sold to Pearson. And prior to that, we created one of the earliest online tutoring companies. So, the rise of online education is kind of that typical overnight success story, which happened to start more than 20 years ago in K 12 and more than 30 years ago in higher ed. And when I think about sort of the promise of technology and education, I love the way that Florida Virtual School, which was one of the first online providers, described the benefits of online learning. Their their sort of tagline was, anytime, any place, any path, and any pace. And that really recognizes the unparalleled flexibility for when you learn, how quickly you learn, where you learn, and allows you to leverage the adaptive learning models, such as Pearson had with SuccessMaker and McGraw-Hill had with LearnSmart, so that the pathway for learning is personalized to what you've demonstrated you've mastered. Now today, I think we're seeing the best and worst of online learning. For those who were forced to jump in with no pre-planning, no training, a mishmash of software systems that were cobbled together and no curriculum cohesion, it's been a very sad state of affairs. And I think it's left students frustrated, teachers in tears, parents angry, and learning diminished. So all schools, both K-12 and higher ed, should now recognize that at least a hybrid model needs to be available from now on, because this will not be our last pandemic. And the systems, the tools, the programs, the training, and the curriculum, they're all available to fulfill the promise of high quality online delivery. This past summer, we held free webinars for K-12 teachers and administrators to share our experience with Thoughtfully delivered online teaching and preparation for this fall. And we reached 7,000 teachers and administrators. But we have over 3 million in America. So we still need a lot more professional development, more intensive planning for infrastructure support, and to bridge that inevitable equity gap, which has become even more apparent as students learn from homes without broadband access or a safe, quiet place to learn so there's a lot more to do right now
0: definitely thinking back to where we were back in 2008 I remember um, teachers just kind of getting on board with technology in the classroom and then fast forward all these years here I'm experienced with technology with all my experience with logging in and I still logged my two girls into the wrong classrooms you know, mistakes are going to happen and teachers are frustrated with the this new work. So I think it's, it's just going to take some time to catch up to where we all really need to be with this. And on the higher ed side, is there anything that you can think of that we should be thinking about for traditional or online higher ed schools?
1: Well, let me address both K-12 and higher ed in terms of what I think we need to do next. Sure. So... First, when you think about going back to campus, whether it's a higher ed campus, or whether you're talking about going to a K-12 school, I think the prioritization of what we should be doing as administrators and executives is the first thing is safety. We know that the COVID-19 virus is real, and we know that it's very contagious. We know it spreads through the air. So we must examine our school environments. Do we have good air circulation? Can we put desks six feet apart? Can we enforce masks to reduce airborne transmission? Can we keep students physically distanced? And can we test and trace if we have positive cases? So first off, safety, that should be primary for us. And then second, I think is most, uh, second important is really about mental health. Um, We're in very stressful times today. So we really need to assure that our students are feeling okay mentally. This crisis is taking an immense toll on mental health and it's increasing stress levels for students, for staff, for parents. And a student who's very stressed or even depressed is not gonna be learning. So addressing the mental health is critical after assuring physical safety. And then after we've addressed both those things, we need to address learning. How do we organize our instruction for the highest levels of content mastery in an imperfect environment, which is this mishmash that you talked about with your daughter. And that requires a lot of coordinated planning across faculty, whether it's in-person, hybrid, or fully online. You you can't sit a student in front of a computer screen for six hours, so you need to develop a plan for varieties of screen and non-screen activities, activities which involve getting up and moving around. I believe that sadly many schools haven't really prepared well enough for this fall. And if they didn't prepare for one set of requirements, those requirements changed within two weeks and their contingency plans were pretty rushed. So I don't think there's one simple answer for all schools, K-12 and higher ed about how we tackle this crisis. But if you take the lens of safety first, mental wellness and learning outcomes, we should come to the right decisions in each case. This is a time that requires strong leadership because there's no solution that's gonna make everybody happy. So you have to have a rational process for examining the issues, building a plan which recognizes uncertainties that we must accept, and the most logical path that a school needs to use to get through this, and then do a really good job of over-communicating because there's going to be naysayers no matter what path you choose, and the more that I think we communicate, the more people will feel comfortable that at least you're following a rational path, and I think that's going to be really critical.
0: And I did see uh, that University of Phoenix has an incredible response to COVID-19 resources on your website. I put them in the show notes. I'll talk about it at the end, but you know, each university website that I've looked at has something like this, so people like you say can follow a protocol. And um, Something that's interesting because of the way Arizona schools work, my daughter went back to school in, or both of them went back in, in August. So I've had a month to see what this uh, going back to school looks like, where I'm watching some of my friends on the East Coast, they're just starting back now. And I I think it's kind of neat because my youngest daughter having these small sections of learning and then breaks has been wonderful for her, because that's how the brain learns. You know, we, like you said, we're not designed to sit at a computer for six hours. So just to, you know, bring this to light that it's okay if the students are doing a little bit of instruction, having breaks. My daughter has been going and petting the cat on her breaks and it's been wonderful for her. But then there's that other part that the older daughter misses the physical connection and seeing her friends. So there's the two sides to think about. But I really think that this this time will make some change in the future as as we go back and, and eventually when everyone's in the classroom to think, well, hey, that worked really well where we took some breaks in between instruction. That's what I'm hoping.
1: Yeah, never let a good crisis go to waste. Let's learn something from this. And I do think as we look forward, the the new future state will be a recognition that hybrid models where students can do some of their learning online, some of their group activities face to face, where teachers can leverage the adaptive learning tools that you spent part of your life working on to allow students to master at their own pace are gonna be valuable lessons that we learn out of this and something that I think will propel both our K-12 schools and our universities forward. It allows us to provide personalization at scale. And that's something we've been trying to do, as as you and I have, for over 20 years. And I think this will give us a a leap step forward in in that journey.
0: Absolutely, Peter. Well, I saw an article you shared on social media and it highlighted a positive point of view of the power of connection that higher ed plays an important role with. And I thoroughly enjoyed my university years. It was a fun time for me. I had, and then I had the opportunity to work with higher ed campuses in the Southwest here. I worked with the Pearson Longman division and had a chance to go site by site. I know that you have a bird's eye view of what's happening in higher ed across the country. And I wonder if you think, how do we keep that social connection going Uh, What interesting things might you have seen students doing at higher ed campuses or, you know, ways to keep connected so that we don't feel isolated with our learning experience?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that we can do, and, and we've been doing online learning in some form or another since 1989, starting off when basically there were three inch floppy disks and sending them out to people through the mail so we understand the need for people to connect to each other on an emotional and social basis in addition to you know some of our programs we were site-based and some of them are online we've moved about 97 percent of our students prior to the crisis online and now that last three percent are online so we have a pretty good experience about how to keep people connected and we use a variety of tools one for example we use facebook And we have study sessions in Facebook, and the last study session we had on Facebook, we had 7,000 students from across the country all connected on Facebook in a live conversation to deal with kind of that social connection that they'd like to have. So leveraging social media, I think, is really important. The other things we try to do is leverage the advantages of the human connection along with the tools we have from uh, virtual chats as well as emails as well as text chats. So we have academic counselors whose sole job it is, is to make sure we retain a human connection with students throughout their journey, throughout their courses. Our faculty members use the leverage of something like Zoom. It's a product in Blackboard called Collaborate, which is a live synchronous video connection that allows our students and faculty to talk to each other live in the same way we're doing right now with Zoom. So I think the connections between faculty and students both one-on-one as well as in a group setting, are important. The connections from our academic counselors, which assure that our students are getting the non academic support they need, because as we talked about earlier with the stresses that are going on in society, you need to be able to connect and talk about things outside of your academics. And then the ability to leverage social media to make sure people are staying connected to each other, which, you know, if you have a daughter who's in school right now, I would not be surprised if she's on Instagram or TikTok or one of the other social media platforms on a very routine basis. So we leverage all of those. And I think schools that are trying to figure out how we stay connected to our students should be leveraging all of those different modalities.
0: Absolutely. Well, that brings me to the whole reason that I launched this podcast um, with the whole idea of bringing the social and emotional side in. I've been interested and drawn to social and emotional really for the past 20 years, these skills, uh, because we know success in life and college and career specifically relies on a student's cognitive and their social and emotional development. So I don't want to just focus on the importance of these skills in our K-12 schools, but also the fact that after K-12 they go on to college and career. What skills do you think are important for students to learn immediately that you see might be missing at the college level and then into career?
1: Yeah, I think you've hit upon something pretty important that today the majority of students who go to college, go to college in order to prepare for a career. There are a few who go on to get PhDs and stay in academia, but the vast majority are really trying to join the workforce. And when you think about what you need to be successful in the workforce, you've got to be comfortable with both hard skills and what we call soft skills, which really aren't very soft at all. But the hard skills, such as the ability to analyze, interpret, and harness data. We have a data-driven society in a workplace that is more data-driven than ever before. All of the decisions I make in business and my peers make are driven by data. Let's see what the data says. So you've gotta be able to analyze that data. You have to be comfortable that you are able to work with that data and competently convey data insights effectively and apply them practically. So first, hard skills. Um, having an understanding of how technology works is really important today. Uh, you have to know how it works and you have to be able to apply it. And we're gonna see continued growth in things like artificial intelligence and workers must be comfortable knowing how to apply artificial intelligence. So there will be a need for employees who can tackle complex systems thinking and be able to write code. So we now incorporated technology skills into all of our programs. So whether you're becoming a teacher or whether you're getting an accounting degree or whether you're gonna be in human resources, we've infused technology skills into that. Next you've got to become an effective communicator. It's essential. You know, with the move to online, it's even more important that you can get your ideas across without being, you know, next to a person who's sitting next to you. So active listening and empathy are really important. Employees have to be able to problem solve, build relationships and think critically, which also means they have to be able to collaborate. So when you think about those Empathy, active listening, problem solving, building relationships, thinking critically, collaborating. We call those soft skills today. You know, I don't think they're very soft. They're real, tangible skills. And then finally, you've got to be adaptable and you've got to be able to reflect creativity. Um, They're more valued now than they ever have been before. Uh, And I think the world, you know, continues to change. We're in a, a VUCA world very volatile, uncertain, uh, complex, and ambiguous, and to operate in that world, you've got to be very capable of changing on a dime. So employers are always looking for workers who can adapt quickly and think creatively about how to get work done. So we've tried to capture these what we're calling soft skills and hard skills in our universally learning goals, which sit above every program that we develop. And that's our commitment to making sure that our students are ready for careers.
0: Wow, I didn't know that you incorporated that into your whole value system there. That's that's wonderful and powerful for students. Thank and you. Yeah, I didn't mention either that I did work at U of P prior to my time at Pearson. I was in the international division. I think it was like 48th Street out there where all the buildings were. Is that where the campus still is, or?
1: No, we're now at uh, 32nd Street, just off of the I-10. So we've got uh, four, three large buildings. I'm at the campus now. We've got a nice quad, uh, and we've moved the campus over here. So come over and take a visit.
0: Oh, absolutely, I'd love to. It's, it's been a while. but And then my husband got his MBA from U of P, so I feel like we're definitely a U of P family and a Pearson family, of course. But um, I remember back then, the biggest hurdle that students had to overcome was Uh, with the decision to study online was whether an online degree held the same weight as a traditional campus degree. Um, But I saw working at U of P just how quickly students could transfer credits that they'd earned from other institutions and it saved them money and time. What initiatives has U of P been focused on knowing that many students may consider a jump to traditional online learning to earn their degree at this time?
1: you know, again, we said never let a great crisis go to waste. I think one of the things that has changed in the last six months is people under, people's understanding that learning online can be effective. They've also, by the way, seen how it's not effective. So people had this kind of polarized view of great online learning and online learning they would not wish upon their child. So we've seen an interest, and there's a few studies that came out this summer on this, we've seen an increased interest in people going back to school wanting to consider an online program. But some of the things that we've done to make our programs as efficient, cost-effective and flexible as possible, especially for our student, which is a working adult. So there's a few of these. First, a few years ago, we put in place a tuition guarantee so that you had assurance assurance about how much it was going to cost you from the time you started to the time you ended. One of the complaints about higher ed in general today has been that every year, traditional universities increase their tuition by between 3 and 6% a year. Ours has not gone up since I've been here. We took it down when I got here and it stayed down. My goal is to continue to drive down the cost of education. Another way we try to make it easier and less expensive for students to go back to school is we have what's called prior learning assessments which awards credits for the professional experience you've had and prior certifications that you've gotten elsewhere. A third thing we're trying to do to make our our programs affordable is we make it really easy to transfer credits from community colleges. And we have agreements with large community college systems in place, including right here at Maricopa County Community College System and these agreements called three plus one give our students a chance to take the first three years of their programs at a community college at a very affordable cost and then transfer the fourth year to the university of phoenix and obtain their bachelor's degree we try to uh, be very flexible so we have courses that start almost uh, 10 times to 15 times a year and the typical course for us is five or six weeks long so students take a course when it's convenient they complete the course and then take the next course. So they take their courses in a linear fashion, which really works well for working adults. Because if you think about the work-life balance of trying to manage your job, your children, your community, and trying to learn three different classes at once, that's an awful lot to take on. So instead, concentrate completely for five or six weeks on one subject, master it. Then the next five or six weeks, you master another subject. And then finally, the last thing we just introduced this summer is again trying to lower that cost and don't have your husband hit me for this, but we've introduced a competency based MBA program that will allow you to complete your MBA in one year for about $10,000. You have to meet some eligibility requirements in terms of your prior learning because it's a very intensive pace, but it's one way for us to increase the efficiency and the cost effectiveness of an advanced degree. And we're going to introduce more of those competency-based programs that are around the $10,000 mark coming up in the future. So those are a few things you might want to consider when you're thinking about an online program.
0: Well, Peter, that's great because um, it's always on your mind, well, how are we going to fit it in and what's the cost? So you've addressed both those. That's, That's good to hear. As we round this up, Peter, is there anything important that's on the scope of education that you think we need to talk about at this point?
1: You know, the one thing we haven't really talked about today, and it's been top of mind for me, and I think it's where education can play a major role, is addressing the social and racial inequities and injustices that we're facing in society today. They're in the news all the time. You know, for example, our systems for funding K-12 education often favors those who live in high-income zip codes, and it perpetuates the divide in resources available to support high-quality education, which ranges from school facilities to teacher salaries to even broadband access. And this divide means those with means tend to have better resourced education opportunities and are thus advantaged throughout life by stronger early learning and more access to technologies which can personalize learning at scale. And as a country, we need to address these equity canyons if we want all children to have an opportunity to succeed at the same rate. And I think this is a very tough, very emotional issue, but it's one that we have to tackle as a nation. And one of the things we're doing is uh, in the early parts of october from october 1st through the, i think the 8th we're co-hosting with the national diversity council a webinar series called conversations in diversity equity and inclusion and this series will focus on three sectors of society healthcare law enforcement and education and we have leaders from across the country who work and lead in these sectors and they're going to discuss the difficult But necessary conversations about equity and inclusion that have to occur, and they have to occur regularly if we're finally going to eradicate systemic racism in our country and begin to create a world where everyone not only feels, but knows that they belong. So, if any of our listeners here would like to participate in this completely free webinar series, you can check out our news hub and and get a link to that. It's at news.phoenix.com edu and it's free registration and we'll have that posted by the end of this week in september 15th
0: perfect and i'll make sure that when that's available it goes in the show notes as well
1: great uh, thank you
0: absolutely peter well i want to thank you so much for your time today it's been wonderful to see you again and connect in person it really is a testament that you never know who you're impacting when you're a leader standing in the front paving the path thanks for all you do for education and for your employees
1: well thank you for having me andrew it's great to finally connect with you again it sounds like you've had a wonderful career and i'm sure it's not even partly over take thank care you.
0: thanks so much and if anyone's considering an online degree at ufp is the best way to go to phoenix.edu, your website, and search for their degree, traditional campuses in in the US. And then international students also, is that correct? Because we do reach 110 countries with the podcast. It doesn't matter where you are in the world to to do a degree.
1: Yeah, we can serve you through our international, uh, we have international students in our programs today. Uh, We can serve everybody through phoenix.edu. You can go there, you can look at career aspirations, you can look at how careers connect to programs of instruction and ultimately connect to jobs in the future. So our goal really is to help students be ready for careers and to help them throughout their careers. So happy to support anybody who would like to learn more at our website.
0: Thanks so much Peter. Thank you.